If you've gotten that phone call from your local Red Cross to donate blood, raise your hand. We're often too busy to do it or are afraid of needles or maybe squeamish, so we opt out. But what I didn't know was just how crucial the need for blood was in all parts of the world. Globally, there is a 100 million unit deficit of donor blood, and this means that when clinicians reach for a unit of blood, it's often not there. If you needed blood, but there was no blood in the hospital blood bank, what do you do? What would your surgeon do? What if I told you that there was a way to donate blood back to yourself? Our guest today, Jillian Henker, co-founder and president of Sisu Global Health, invented Hemafuse for this exact problem. Hemafuse is a medical device that increases access to blood by enabling clinicians to capture a patient's blood, filter it, and return fresh, whole blood back to that same patient. It provides immediate access to blood transfusion across trauma, obstetric, general, and orthopedic surgeries with internal bleeding. In this conversation, we even talk about how in some hospitals, about 50% of their blood supply is used for maternal cases because hemorrhage is the leading cause of maternal mortality. So yeah, the need for blood is huge. Before we dive in, here's a little more about Jillian. Jillian Henker is a two-time founder with a proven track record of execution. She's the primary inventor of Humifuse, in addition to two other medical technologies. She led the development of Humifuse, global regulatory clearances, including FDA, and launch in five countries across Africa, Asia, and Europe. She has been published in the International Journal of Gynecology and Obstetrics, has presented at the Midwest Biomedical Engineering Career Conference and Appropriate Healthcare Technologies for Developing Countries Seminar in London, and was named Baltimore Technologist of the Year. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. My name is Hathal Bauman, and this is The Global Health Pursuit. Jillian, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. This is, you know, this is a topic that I think is very, it's very different. I feel like people don't really talk about this as much within the global health space, at least in my, my periphery. (laughs) So Jillian, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk about what we're doing here. And again, even more so just topics within global health, right? Like kind of the the sector that we're in, the industry that we're in. It's weird to call it an industry, but yeah, like the sector that we're in for healthcare. And Yeah. So tell me, you are an engineer as well. So we're fellow engineers. Yeah. I, I have a biomedical engineering background. You have a mechanical engineering background, yeah. right? Yeah. So tell me about moving through college and then the journey into the global health space. Yeah. So I'll say that it's kind of a a family thing. So my parents and my sister are all nurses. uh, And so my dad uh, went to Southeast Asia, Cambodia when I was in high school. So I definitely got more of a exposure to international healthcare. He would just call it his international work, his international volunteering. But he's a professor, so it's all about education and teaching within global health. But what I loved about it as well is he was 
getting his own education in, you know, from his students and what that environment was like. So I kind of was able to go into college, but I thinking and knowing a little bit about global health. But that being said, I kind of was like, I know that I'm not a clinician. I know that that's not my field as much as my family was like, oh, giving me all this exposure and talking about healthcare. And I'm like, I know that I know that's not me. I'm not that person that can handle that sort of situation. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be different and go into engineering. And then, of course, my my senior year, I had an opportunity for a global health program at Michigan. And I was like, well, I know a little bit about this. Let me see what I, I can do. And then they're like, they're just real. My family basically reeled me back into healthcare. Oh, my <laughs> from God. Engineering, so. I feel like we have our paths are like pretty aligned in that sense. We're like all of my cousins and I feel like, I feel like a broken record on this podcast because I talk about this so many times. We're like my cousins, they're all doctors. Mm -hmm. I have like, there's a a nurse in my family, a physical therapist in my family. There's everyone in the health (laughs) field. I think we'll have one lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just like, just you know goes to show it's the influence that we have growing mm-hmm. up and then when we realize hmm, i don't know about that because that's what i did I, I went through college i studied biomedical engineering mm-hmm. and i was like okay well maybe i'll go to medical school with this field yeah i had no pre like i never thought about engineering prior to college oh okay. i just lo- right I, it was weird because like I mean, when you're like 17 years old, you're like, oh, well, this major sounds like healthcare, but it makes like I can just get a job right out of college. Yeah. Right. Instead of having to do the medical school and then the residency and all of that stuff. And I mm-hmm. realized that I am a very anxious test taker. So if I wanted oh. to go through, yeah, like I was just like, eh, I don't know about this. So. I mean, that it's so funny that you said that, and it's that it's our paths kind of aligned in that sense where we just kind of went right back. We eventually came back to the field of healthcare, right? Yeah. And, but not in the way that our families would have thought. No, no. And yeah, my sister is like, oh, we're. We're similar, but we're polar opposites. Like, she's an adrenaline junkie, right? Like, she loves being in that emergency situation. She loves, you know, I call her, like, a, you know, she does a lot of great, awesome things with, like, search and rescue and, and oh, wow. doing, like, emergency or, like, yeah, critical care stuff. And I'm just like, nope, can't handle it. Let me just <laughs> sit here and, and do my thing and figure things. And, again, we're both problem solvers, but, yeah, yeah. they're – they're very much in the let's get into it. Very calm, steady, and mm. I'm just kind of like let let's go for it, but in a very different sense. <laughs> I will do it from my home. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll do it. I'll I'll enable you guys to do it. Like I'll enable yes. you to do what you need to do, which is where I sit now. But it's like let me enable you to do awesome things and um, give you guys what you need. But I'm not going to be the one that is able to handle what you guys can handle. So. Yeah. I mean, 
we always, I feel like doctors always say that the engineers behind the product, the implants and the instruments that they use mm-hmm. are always like, they're like, you guys are 10 times smarter than me. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. So you kind of found yourself back into the healthcare field, but mm-hmm. w- were there any significant events where you were like, you know what, like I really want to focus on global health or was that kind of the influence of your dad? So I'd say in high school, you know, I, I had my dad who, you know, going through his own, you know, journey kind of went, found this opportunity and he, he's a teacher at heart. So he was teaching overseas And then I will say, like, I have a a high school teacher that I'm very close to on the history side Mm -hmm. that gave me a lot of interest in, you know, like world history as well as like world cultures. And so that's where I was looking at, you know, global health, not just from a healthcare perspective, but from a historical perspective um, and multi-layered approach of economics and just history Mm -hmm. of where we're at. So that's kind of what I would say gave me more of that interest to not only be within engineering, but my high school, you know, starting from high school and international education and thinking about international disparity, you know, inequities and disparities. So that kind of put that bug in my ear. Uh, but I love, again, I love my engineering. I want to be an engineer since like I was in sixth grade. I love making things. So I, I do love the engineering side. I love tinkering. I love problem solving. Mm-hmm. But I would say, yeah, the global health side was a little bit from my parents, a little bit from my high school education. And then I just found opportunities at um, the University of Michigan that I could then take that to the next level. And really was, I would say, another catalyst to starting CSU was at University of Michigan. So. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A, click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full time and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm. Or C, share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah. So at Michigan, was was it like a design course that kind of propelled you? Because I know that some, mm-hmm. some schools, they'll have like a... Uh, biomedical design capstone or mm-hmm. something like that where you kind of develop something and then you run with it and create your own product was that kind of what happened well i'd say even before that so i have to shout out professor kathleen sienko we were her <laughs> you know she kind of had this idea she's a she's a mechanical engineering professor but she okay kind of brought together some folks from like the entrepreneurship program. So she had this vision of a engineering program that was designed, but as well as looking at, you know, kind of that three legged stool of, you know, feasibility, viability, and desirability mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. products and to make a company. And so she really wanted to look at, so I was part of, I will say I was cohort one <laughs> nice. of her program that kind of had this vision of bringing that all together in which I'm eternally grateful because 
again, as someone who had family in more of academia, again, professor, university, my mom's in research, I was never really thinking about business. And I kind of had a negative view of business until getting into entrepreneurship in college. Oh my God, tell me more about that. Yeah, well, I just, I had a very, you know, coming from, again, a family of academics, I was yeah. like, oh, what is, bu business is just people who want to make money. Mm. <laughs> and again, coming from my mom's uh, research, you know, it's a researcher for like pediatric work. And then my dad, again, a professor. So it was very much about altruism and helping folks. Mm -hmm. And I never saw business really being in that equation, mainly because of my lack of exposure for my family to that. So I just thought, oh, engineering, I'm going to make great product and we're just going to sell it and design will solve right. everything. And then going through an entre I just squeezed in an entrepreneurship class, like at max credits, my final semester of undergrad at Michigan. And it really changed a lot of my perspective on what entrepreneurship and what business can do. Mm -hmm. And even some of the mentors from the business school at Michigan, right after I graduated, part of their accelerator program is for startups, really gave me a whole new perspective on thinking, you know, businesses shouldn't be there just to make products. They're there to solve problems, problems. and to, to make mm -hmm. that difference. And so I then was like, Ah, now I'm, but then again, now I'm again, even more the black sheep sometimes <laughs> in my family because they're so academic and now they're like, what is this entrepreneurship thing? Business? <laughs> we would never have thought you to go into business. If anything, you're like the nerdy engineer that is just going to go and do more nerdy engineering Or things. be like a professor with their lab and all of that. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. But that's, again, that's kind of my family, right? Doing research, do, doing teaching. And not to say that I don't love teaching or working with students, I do, and that's more mm -hmm. so in my family, but it's also to say that discovering business in the way that I did, I think also makes me think about kind of the pros and cons of of businesses and what they can do and what they they fall short of based on what I think of as my family's work and what they do with grants and research. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. So you kind of was like breaking the mold there in your family. Now, fast forward to Sisu Global Health. Mm -hmm. The need that you're trying to tackle is the the need for blood mm -hmm. at a global scale. Yeah. How did you discover that need? And then when did you have that light bulb moment that like, oh, I could create a product that can serve patients all around the world within low and middle income countries? Like, what was that thought that what was the thought process like there? Yeah. So like I said, I was I was part of this cohort at Michigan and basically our initial kind of challenge, you know, our initial goal within an observation period before we started our, our capstone process with mm -hmm. Professor Sienko's direction and, and that uh, process was looking at needs, right? And right, we right. specifically, and I have to explain to people, like the Millennium Development Goals were still goals at the time. Mm -hmm. So this was a while ago, but one of the main ones we were looking at was reducing maternal mortality by, okay. I believe it was two, three Three fourths, so like seventy five percent, so pretty pretty ambitious, and I don't think it was met by most of the countries that it was aimed towards. So that's where we were just looking at needs within maternal health, and you know there was a a couple of us that were put on a list 
to observe a specific procedure called the scoop and sieve. So I knew my phone number, so I put I put my phone number on that list okay. to observe this scoop and sieve procedure, which is where they, because there's so little blood, they'll take, they'll scoop blood from the patient's abdomen in surgery, put it through a piece of gauze, then put it into a bag, uh, or they'll empty out a, a blood bag with anti-clotting solution, mix that together and then pour it back into the bag and clip it shut and, and transfuse the patient with their own blood. So they are doing kind of an auto transfusion, which is giving the patient back their own blood, but it's through what we call scoop and sieve. So you scoop the blood and then you sieve it through gauze. Now, again, this is when like you have no blood available. We had a, a member of the cohort that went to the blood bank, saw how much blood they have had. It wasn't a lot. We ourselves as Folks that were there were asked our blood types so that mm-hmm. we could potentially go and donate our blood for patients. But the challenge there was like, I'm not to say this maybe too, but like, I know my blood type, I'm a positive, yeah. but there was a patient who was O positive mm-hmm. and I can't donate to that patient. I'm O positive. <laughs> you, you can, <laughs> right? But then it, it goes to like, I'm getting asked that, like this per, this nurse is going down the row. He's asking, who, what's your blood type? And mm-hmm. I don't have the right blood type. And so it's like, who can we find to be the right blood type? Then all the screening and cross-matching just to get that done. It's very common. So you talk to a lot of people and they say, yeah, I get, you know, messages, WhatsApp messages all the time saying so-and-so needs anyone who's this blood type, go to this hospital to donate. And even in, you know, a very fancy hospital, I will say in Nairobi, I volunteered, I got through a chain of messages asking for a positive. I went to donate. And by the time I got there, unfortunately, they didn't need my donation. Mm. But it's just to say, yeah, for me to get across Nairobi to donate, it's, it's too much time. It's too much time for a patient that really needs it that desperately. So, um, yeah, so that was where the it was kind of adding up the fact that, okay, we're getting asked our blood type. They're performing the scoop and sieve procedure. And we see that there's barely anything in the blood bank, you know. So this is beyond it. I will say for us, we knew there were a majority of blood is being used for maternal cases. I think in some hospitals are like, it's about 50% of blood is being used for maternal cases because mm. hemorrhage is the leading cause of maternal mortality. So it is a major blood thing, but then it's also, you think of all the other places that blood impacts. It's a lot, even out and outside of surgery and outside, you know, it's just a lot of patients need blood. It's a major consumable of any institution that does healthcare. So it kind of started from maternal mortality, seeing that hemorrhage is the leading cause of maternal mortality. Blood is needed when you're hemorrhaging. Okay, right. but how much blood is needed then across an entire healthcare system? Mm. So that's kind of where it was like for us, seeing it as a niche need from a millennium development goal to then seeing right. it as an entire healthcare system need that goes beyond that. And what can we do at least with our initial need that we're identifying within surgery to then see how it can impact greater beyond that. So, yeah. That, I have never heard of the scoop and save method. Yeah. That is just like you talking about it. It doesn't sound like in my, like in my engineering mind, I'm like, could that cause infection? Could that cause like, what are like the, negative implications of using that method versus 
some just getting blood from the blood bank. Well, I, I will say, and to to your point there, though, you know, scoop and sieve has saved lives because because when you have no blood available, any in some ways, it's like any blood is is better than known. None. Right. Right. But it's also to say that, yeah, there there can be better ways. But I, I know there are even some places where they'll just take a, like, you know, 10cc syringe and they'll right. suction blood from the surgical site and then just use that to try and transport blood into a blood bag to then be reinfused, right? So there are a lot of methods, like ad hoc methods that people right. have done to try and do this. We've made it into a device that, of course, in many ways makes it simpler, safer, and, and more effective, I would say, to salvage multiple units of blood very quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there a study someone did, you know, you can collect a couple units within 10 minutes with yeah. ours to transfuse instead of having to, again, scoop or, or take a 10cc syringe. That is so crazy. So Sorry. that's where, yeah, for us... It, it's a. I mean, that just yeah. speaks to the res- the resourcefulness. Oh, abs- absolutely. Again, clinician, and it was interesting for us as well. Like interviewing folks on the scoop and sieve, it was only the most senior people doing it hmm. because it does take a lot of skill and you know understanding on how to best handle blood through that many steps. Like it's a lot right. of blood, it's a lot of steps, and you're mixing and ratios and it and giving it back to the patient. It, it's actually, when I was talking to students, they're like, oh, we can't do that. It's only the most senior people. And a lot of places have phased it out, but in a pinch, right. people will bring it back. And again, it saves lives in a pinch, but it also is something that I think we can improve upon for safety and efficacy for those who want to perform this type of procedure. So, wow. The other question I had was in terms of like a blood bank, like if mm-hmm. I were to donate blood mm-hmm. how long can that blood sit in the blood bank before it's rendered like expired well so uh as one of my my co-founders say like blood is not like wine it's like milk so oh, okay. um and it and it depends a bit so whole blood i believe can be up to 30 to 35 days so that's when you just keep all the blood together yeah yeah but when you break it up into components which a lot of people <laughs> like to do the red cells can be, I believe, for 42 days. But again, as that time goes on, those cells start to get harder and and less potent in their ability to deliver oxygen and be like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. useful. So that's where they kind of cut it off at 42 days. But everyone loves fresh. You want fresh blood. Right. Nice fresh, fresh blood. blood. I'm like vampires. I know. Exactly. Well, blame me. Oh my goodness. How many, how, the, blame me there. But, and then if you break it up then into like platelets, which are clotting factors, mm-hmm. those can last, I mean, just a couple days. Most people want to just have them day of. Right. So, right. and you want to split up those components so that you could have a patient that only needs the platelets or only needs the red cells. Um, but yeah, so that's where... If it's platelets, a couple days. If it's red cells, you can lengthen out to 42. I believe, again, I think whole blood is around 30. Everyone wants the freshest freshest blood possible um, mm-hmm. as soon as possible. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, in terms of, like, if there was a, 
a blood bank and if a patient was able to get that, what mm-hmm. would be the like I know it probably varies from country to country, but in terms of like some of the countries that you work in, what are the current costs of having a blood transfusion? Yeah, so I it does vary. So I will say in some of the countries that we're in, there is a program called PEPFAR, which okay. is all it's from the US government. It's all about having safe transfusions because the main goal of the fund is uh to reduce or eliminate HIV. So a big p- part of reducing that is having adequate screening and testing of blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. before they go back into a patient. So PEPFAR, CDC will subsidize some of the funding for these blood banks to make sure that they're able to do all the proper screenings and testing before it goes into a patient from a donor. So that's where those blood donations can still cost anywhere between like 30 to $60 per unit. Okay. Um, that being said, like here in the U.S., you know, Red cells, just red cells can cost over $250 per unit. With the and how f- much is a unit? That's like a half a liter of blood. So okay. uh, 450 to 500 ml. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we do a pint, which is closer to 350. Um, but most of the places we go to, it's like 400 to 500 ml bags. So yeah, but you're looking at a half a liter Again, it could cost $30 with subsidies. It could cost $250 actually at cost. And I think like in South Africa right now, it's around $100 per unit of mm-hmm. just red cells, uh, about $130 for whole blood. But then like platelets are like $500, right? Yeah, $800 right. because they're only lasting for a day and you don't have that much, you know, so you only have that that lasts for a day or so and then you're done. Whereas right. the other ones you can have to match later. So it just depends on where we're at, what the subsidies are. Um, but the challenge that we found is like in Kenya, you know, PEPFAR reduced their funding. So mm. when you get to certain stages or funding isn't there, then what are folks going to be able to do to screen and properly deliver this blood that then is already in short supply because they need to run all these donation campaigns So to run a donation campaign, you need to have marketing, recruiting, uh, staff to phlebotomists to like get the blood as well as then like all the snacks and everything to recruit people on transportation costs. So even just donor, anytime you go to a donor blood drive, there's still a lot of costs incurred just to even collect what you think of as free blood, right? Free donor blood, like people should donate their blood freely, but just know that there are always costs even with when you give your blood for free. And that's where a lot of people are like, my blood should be free because I gave it for free. And it's like, well, <laughs> there's a lot of other costs to make sure that your blood is safe and effective and, and properly handled to get yeah, to the patient. going somewhere and just being like, stick me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's where it's like, no, no, there's a lot of things going on here, right? And that's where it's a common misconception as well because they're like, it's for free. And it's like, well, it's not quite for not free. technically. Yeah, I mean... So in these, in these situations where you're focused and when a patient needs blood, like what mm-hmm. is the process that they have to go through? Like, do they have to sign off on something or like, what is that? What does that look like for them? Well, so for some patients, of course, they have certain, um, 
I won't say maybe objections, but they, they need to have certain handling of blood. So some patients won't receive transfusions. Um, they generally will let the, the clinical team know that they can't receive a transfusion. There are some religious groups. Uh, but most people, you know, they think of receiving blood as being fairly straightforward. I think, though, the challenge, and I even heard this recently on a trip, if that you know facility doesn't have blood on hand, they might send you like somewhere to get blood. So they might okay. send you like in an ambulance or say like, hey, go down, get blood and come back. And when I was hearing this, I was like, but that's like a 40 minute trip. So you're, you're taking like a trip across town to then pick blood from where you think it's at. That's still going to cost some money. And then yeah. you're taking a trip back. And I'm like, that could be an hour and a half just to receive blood because you don't have it on hand. But a lot of these hospitals, especially in the areas that we work, they do have networks. They do rely on each other. They do try and like share resources. But it's to say that there are times when that's just not enough or there are too many people that they can't handle the demand. So whenever they- Or even determining on like how critical the case is too. Yeah, yeah. So that's where, and a lot of places have what is the WHO would call, I think, replacement donors. So they'll say, hey, have a family member donate. Mm-hmm. And then, then we'll release blood to you. So it's not that your family, you're getting your family members' donation, but because they don't want to be without blood, because like you're tick, requesting tick it for tit for tat kind yeah, of Yeah, it's like okay. Mm-hmm. And again, that's where you get the people sending messages to friends, being like, "Hey, can you go donate for me?" So that they'll release a, <laughs> a unit of blood wow. to me. They'll release a unit of blood to me, but you need to go donate to like replenish their supply. So it's a lot, it's, and again, this is one where here, uh, so some people would be like, what? And then other places are like, it's just the accepted norm that if you know right. someone has a procedure that they need to do, specifically like elective surgeries. So elective surgeries where they think there's going to be heavy bleeding, they'll ask you to, to have family members donate. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And the w- I didn't, yeah, never heard of that. Yeah, and the WHO is definitely trying to get away from replacement donors. Like they want just populations to be able to donate and whatever the donor population is, that can sustain the whole healthcare system without needing to require replacement donors. Wow. Okay. So tell me about your solution to this problem. Hemofuse. So how did, how was it developed? Um, like, what was your, I'm just thinking an engineering mindset where like, you know, you, you do the VOC first, you get your inputs, <laughs> your outputs, all of that stuff. So what was that beginning stage look like when you were developing the product? So I will say like, I was on the side where de- definitely on the neat side. So I do have like an original notebook where I did the the functional decomposition when the mm-hmm. head of the department, Dr. O'Doy, was going through and saying, you know, I want an auto transfusion device, or I want something that will be able to take a patient's blood. And again, initially it was thought that this would be an electromechanical system or something like that. I wasn't on that cohort team though, initially to put together the giant syringe uh, concept. Mm. It was a couple of biomedical engineers uh, and some, (laughs) some folks who are now doctors who, who put together the initial concept 
But that's where, as a team, we put kind of this product and another one that I was working on in labor and delivery kind of into a, a group team, like for the entrepreneurship class. Yeah. And we came out with saying this, again, this is the product that we knew was going to be the harder regulatory pathway, but we knew had one of the most compelling needs for, you know, giving blood during surgery. So that's where... And believe me, and going through also taking a team's, again, a a student team's thing and then breaking it down be like, no, no, we need to like make engineering targets. And and believe me, I I broke it down and and put it back together. And it was a lot of like, but this is the concept. I'm like, I know, but I need to put specific numbers and I always need the why. So I'm Mm -hmm. a big person on like, why, why, why? And I think that I, I love it now going through and even with uh, like distributors or people that are in healthcare and I'm like, oh, this is why this is the way it is. And it's it's right. very intentional. It's not just by accident. There's a reason we're striving for this. And it's always a pro con of uh, how much do we want to fight for this or how much do we want to like default to something that might be cheaper or easier to do with that feature. So yeah. So basically the students came up with the concept and then I like to say it was part of the part that was like taking it from the 3D printed super glued prototype, which is great. I love the spray painted super glued prototype into what it is now, which is a commercial product that is now sold uh, in different markets. So that's more the part that I did was like kind of breaking it apart and putting it and taking it to the next stage. So I love that. Yeah. I mean, the just seeing it from like the super glued, like <laughs> we have them too. I literally have like a, an evolution of Hemafuse where we still have one of the student ones. It's very yellow and very brittle with the, <laughs> the, that, but I'm like, yeah, this is, this is the process. And again, I feel like a lot of people want to think it's the IDEO post-it notes, like, oh, making the concept. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. you can make the concept, but there's so much to it to take it beyond that. And it's not always about just taking the prototype and then making it into a mold and manufacturing it right, right away. It's right. what are the intents and then how do you make sure that you're preserving those aspects as you translate it into production? Um, and right. what are you willing to let go of? And I feel like actually being not an initial inventor of it, being a little bit of a later inventor on it, gave me a little bit more objectivity on like what that looks like, even though now people would say I'm still not objective because it's, I've not been able to shepherd it this far, but it's, yeah. So I, I actually like that I'm not part of the original team, which you can look mm-hmm. up their team report on Michigan's website, but yeah. I'm, I'm kind of on the later stage ish of it. Yeah. So can you paint a picture of what this looks, the Hemafuse looks like and how it works? Yeah, yeah. So the Hemafuse is like a really big syringe. It's like a half liter <laughs> syringe, just like you think, where you think of the needle. That's where you kind of have the suction tip that goes into the patient's abdomen or mm-hmm. chest cavity when there's surgery being performed. So during surgery, you're having blood that's pooling. This can suction that blood. And instead of it just going to waste, like into a suction machine, mm-hmm. this device suctions it puts it through a filter that's in the front part of the device front part of the syringe i'm literally looking at the picture yeah you're telling me that (laughs) yeah collects it and then when you push down one-way valves redirect it from the front to the side 
that goes mm. directly into a citrated blood bag, which is like an anti-clotting solution that then goes into the blood bag. And then you can rock that blood, mix it, and it goes directly in there so that you can detach it, put an infusion set on it, hang it, and give it right to that patient immediately. And you can use the device for multiple blood bags. So we've had cases that have gone up to three units, which is what we recommend. And then we've monitored cases where, yeah, they've said they've collected even more blood than that, but they've wow. only like retransfused, they've only needed to retransfuse three units, which is a liter and a half. And for people to know, like, you don't have, like, that's a large percentage of your blood volume. Like you usually have about like maybe five Yeah, what's liters. the number? Like five liters in five your body liters, okay. of blood, which again, it so, and again, depending on size, height, et cetera, like men versus <laughs> women. But yeah, that's like, so a liter and a half is a lot percentage one to retransfuse. And so that's what we recommend. And it's whole blood. So that means it's red cells, plasma, platelets. So you're getting all your own stuff back in the ratio that it's typically in your body at and getting it back immediately. So within, again, like 10 minutes, I like to say for a couple of units. Wow. So I know like just from your website, you say that Hemafuse provides immediate access to blood transfusion across trauma, obstetric, general, and orthopedic surgeries with internal bleeding. Mm-hmm. When it came to putting this product into play and into doctor's hands, mm-hmm. what was the first procedure type that you were using? Yeah. So for us, again, and there are clinicians across the board that kind of, even within those general categories, specialize in things. I would say, again, like I said, OBGYNs call the blood bank for the most blood. So they are always kind of up on the blood need. So there definitely are OBG, not to say anything against other surgeons, but our OBGYN folks are like, they're on it. And I would say the first one, and this goes to um, our a collaboration and a grant that we received from USAID and, and the folks for the Saving Lives at Birth Grand Challenge, which is, again, is like Gates Foundation and, and the other um, countries, Koika, mm-hmm. Na- Norway, UK Aid and Grand Challenges Canada. Sorry, I just want to name them. So uh, we all, we love you all. We specifically focused on what are called ruptured ectopic pregnancy surgeries. So it's the leading cause of maternal mortality within the first trimester. Uh, so this is where the uh, the fertilized embryo implants outside the uterus. So mm-hmm. typically in the fallopian tube is a common place. The fallopian tube can't expand like a uterus can. Right. And so it ends up rupturing that. And it's a very like a uh, vascular organ, right? So that's where you have a massive amount of bleeding that can occur. And again, you can lose up to like two liters just in your abdomen, wow. which again, percentage wise is very high, especially for smaller oh. women. Mm-hmm. So they'll come in uh, with low uh, hemoglobin counts and it's all internal bleeding. So that's where you want to stop the bleeding and it's a fair, they kind of can do an ultrasound or some really good guys can even just palpate and say like, I think I know what this is. You need to go yeah. to surgery. And with all that blood that's pooling internally in their abdomen because of the rupture, that's where hemofuse is, is a clear, easy indication for that blood to be then captured, filtered and given back to that same patient. So that's where our like first kind of focus was mainly because again, OB2ANs love using blood and it's a clear need that these patients 
might not get blood or need a high volume of blood as well. So when you have that immediate need of a high volume of blood, that's where, again, where some of those sharing networks among hospitals, when they're like, I need three to five units of blood. It's like, okay, I might have one or two units I can spare and I might not have the right blood type. If it's a patient who, again, is A positive and you're, you know, I only have, or it's like O positive and I only have A positive blood, that blood is no good to you because it's the wrong blood type and they can't, that's O positive can't receive in, you know, most of the time A positive. So um, that's where it's like, okay, that was kind of our first indication. That's where our first use cases. And I will say, like, again, Dr. Lloyd did our first case in Kenya on a Saturday night. Late at night, a ruptured ectopic case, and uh, and he and it was like him and one other surgeon and an anesthesia person and like a runner nurse, and I was there as well, just hanging out, watching. And, first and that use, was the first procedure, first use of hemofuse, <gasps> wow. and he was upset because he didn't have more blood bags, and it was, <laughs> and he could have gotten more, but it was like the most beautiful, like wow. I was just like if okay, you're spoiling me because this is like our first complete use of hemofuse where he's using it and then retransfusing the patient. I have a picture of the blood bag because, again, patient stuff. But I'm like, this is – I was like, well, if this is how it goes, then we're good to go. But he was very – you know, he did a lot of the emergency surgeries. Mm -hmm. Um, They kind of called him in. So he just saw our poster on the wall of this device. He wasn't even in our initial training. And he was like, yeah, who do I need to – call to get to use this thing. And I'm like, my number of course is right there. And I'm like, you call me and I will be there. And I will, <laughs> I will be there. <laughs> I will walk you through this thing and we will do it. And I will not touch anything. Cause again, like I said earlier, I am not a nurse. <laughs> I am not a doctor. That is not my purview, but I will do everything I can to make sure that you can use this properly and effectively for your patient right now. So yeah. And again, it was one where he was He was happy with it. He was, and again, it was like a little bit of skepticism where he's Mm. like, oh, it worked, it worked well. And I was like, I'm glad you think so. He's like, yeah, no, the patient's doing really well. And I'm like, great. I'm glad we're on the same page. That that's what I was like expecting. And he, but again, that little. What what were you expecting? Exactly. Exactly. So that's where I'm like, I like the little bit of skepticism because it makes me know that he's going to be truthful with me and let me know that. It's going well, despite what he might have anticipated as, again, a new device, something that's new to his practice. And I'm like, great. You just had, like, your validation lab, like, right there. Yeah. That was <laughs> great. It's like, I'll, I'll come on a Saturday night and hang out and, and see you do some surgeries. Um, wow. And So, yeah. go ahead. No, and I was just going to say that we get told a lot that ruptured ectopics come at night. And one of the reasons that a lot of the, and of course, on the night shift, they might have students or other folks that, you know, are just there to catch the emergencies. But we heard was, you know, one of the reasons people speculate is because a lot of these women, they'll like muscle it out Mm -hmm. during the day, even though they have abdominal pain. And you never know some, and again, it's one of those where it's like, I don't know what this is. It hurts, but it's not too bad. I'll muscle through it. But then at night trying to sleep. Like, I can't sleep. I need to go in. So a lot of these cases come at night. Everyone joke, like, they say, like, oh, this ruptured ectopics only come at night. Yeah. So that's where I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll come and be with you. Initially, like, 
when I could be in more places and we only rolled it out to a couple hospitals. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I'll be with you. Call me in the middle of the night. I'll, I'll come through and make sure that you're ready to go. Because, yeah, a lot of the folks were saying these cases really are dominant at night. Wow. Yeah. So going from that first procedure to mm -hmm. then distributing it to other doctors, doing the training, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. How did that happen over time? So we definitely knew we wanted to look for like a local partner to distribute. Um, mm -hmm. And the bigger part that I was interested in was, of course, knowing that I, I can't be everywhere. Right. <laughs> right. So we do have to train. So it was fun Actually, and I was telling actually our master trainer this recently, because when I first met her, we, we were talking to a, a distributor we had at the time, and I then found out how she actually got. <laughs> so they just recruited a bunch of clinicians or potential trainers to come in. And I was like, no, no, I, I have to interview you guys. I just don't want to have anyone do this. But right. I actually talked to, I call my family my consultants at this point um, as a spoiler for other folks. Because again, like <laughs> I, I have great, a great resource of like, my mother has done like big, like internet or like national, like clinical trials. And my dad, who's done a lot of academia and teaching. So I, t I asked my dad, I was like, Hey, what should I look for in a trainer? Cause I was thinking, Oh, I just needed to be people who know this procedure but my dad gave me great questions to ask about teaching philosophy and education and how people connect to their like how they would actually teach this. And mm -hmm. so I joke with our master trainer and who's is a great clinician, but at first I was like, oh, she's kind of selling herself as a, a public health person, but mm -hmm. she is one of the best like seeing her run a training session of hemofuse is amazing. And I'm like, I'm the inventor and I cannot teach it as well as the trainers that we have at CSU, right? Wow. They really understand, they're clinicians, but they also have great teaching and educational philosophies on how they go about engaging an audience and how they can like kind of read an audience and know what they need. So I love working with them. So that was one of the big steps was actually getting local trainers who were bought into the product as well as bought into also helping us refine the, the teaching and how we're going to educate people on this product. Cause it is very simple. Again, like I said, it is a giant syringe. It is very simple, <laughs> but it's also that building awareness, building understanding of which right. procedures to use it in, how to give people the confidence to even use this product because they are really intense surgeries that we intend it for. Right. It's, these surgeries that have massive bleeding that, you know, can really be a, a huge adrenaline rush and then saying, hey, here's a new product to use while you're doing this adrenaline intense procedure. Um, and some like a Dr. Lloyd. I remember all the training that I gave you. And yeah, I know. Yeah. And my favorite, though, is like now with the, the trainers, they'll like. When I'm when I was in the room at the time, you know, when I could be in the room for a small amount, hearing some of like the circular nurses being like, oh, you know, blue goes to blue, clear goes to clear, which is an assembly mantra we have. And they're like, yeah, up yeah. is for air, down is for blood. And I'm like, this is great. I love that you are now singing almost like chanting our training things to help the team use the product that that's like, yeah, probably one of my favorite things as well. So 
I, think, I mean, like to yeah. simplify it down to that level yeah. that they can do that. That's yeah. like the best thing, like in engineering philosophy, like just so good. I yeah. yeah. No, and so that's where I think as an engineer who's like, oh yeah, an engineer can make the product, but that you know, they call it like behavior science or implementation science mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of I don't care. And this is where again, like human factor, human factors. But it's also to say, like, you can make the most beautifully research and even human factor to research product. Mm-hmm. But if that person does not feel confident picking it up or right. if they don't know where There's to no pick point. it up, mm-hmm. implementation science is about human behavior and the wacky, weird humans that we are, no matter what culture it is, to say, I can have the most beautiful, well-researched, well-adapted product, as I believe, you know, Hemafuse is and, and, and will continue to improve upon. But it's to say, if it's behind a locked closet because they forgot to bring it out for night shift, if it is something that someone is not confident to pick up because they don't know where to look to get instructions on it doesn't matter yeah it's like the initial like 30 seconds of looking at the product and being like is this going to overwhelm me or no <laughs> exactly right exactly exactly so so that's where and again every human's also different dr lloyd's like i wasn't in the training session but i see a picture and i like it so i want call whoever you need to come in and do this <laughs> versus others who are staff who are more cautious and and don't want to rock the boat and want to be confident in what they're already doing and don't want to add in another factor that might cause them to delay a surgery or might cause right. them to to make a mistake so I get both and I, I want to be on the same page with both and I want to connect and, and improve and, and have them use Hemafuse and see it as a value to their practice. So, and any device that Sisu makes, right? That's part of it. Right. So it's all about, yeah, but, but implementation science, behavior science, which again comes from my ner- my family my on, background. <laughs> well, and, and my family, like both, you know, uh, my my dad does a lot of simulation work, mm. right? So mm-hmm. simulation for students to get scenario and ex- to do different scenarios and exposure is like super important. And that's where with our training, we have a little mini simulator that comes with our training kit because he's like, yeah, you, I can look at Hemofuse and assemble it, but what if I need gloves? What if I need to go around clots? Right. How does it feel and how to mimic that environment? So there are, wow. my family's always with me doing helping in the background. <laughs> I love that you got consultants like in your pocket, right? <laughs> consultants. They get paid with, with holidays with and yeah, with <laughs> love and holiday time and things like that. So. Priceless, right? Yeah. So the, when the Russia and Ukrainian war started, and this product was was this product available when the conflict started so we we have have and and had been focused in sub-saharan africa yeah. um so we hadn't really been in the humanitarian space yet it had always been something that we had thought about okay. um, as being a potential use uh, but that was one where we're like, again, that happened right when we had actually a, a big shareholder meeting and several mm. of our shareholders brought up the idea and 
it was when kind of I was starting to transition into more of this president, like this role as president. And I was like, let's see what we can do. Like, and again, it's one where as again, an engineer, I kind of want to make sure that we're, we're above board and see if it's applicable. Um, right. And yeah, I just saw a, a potential connection and collaboration with some NGOs. But yes, we had not been thinking uh, like that area of the world yet. Um, mm-hmm. But that's where, again, we saw. There was a big need there. there. Need. Yeah. And so you'd said that you weren't really in the humanitarian space until then so what what was the process like you know connecting with ngos within ukraine and then kind of targeting hospitals and physicians in order to distribute hemofuse is the hemofuse a device that can be sterilized and used again or is it a one-time a one-time device so I'll, I'll start with the device question, then I'll get into our cool. partnerships. Yeah, so for Hemafuse, for the current iteration that we have in, you know, most of sub like in our sub-Saharan Africa folks, so like Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana to start, it's a reusable pump. So the syringe, giant syringe part is reusable in an autoclave uh, okay. up to 25 times. Uh, so that's four parts there. But like the, the filter and the accessory kit, that is per patient per surgery because there's just no way to clean the blood contacting services. The filter obviously is just, it's micron level. So it's, it's impossible to clean that safely. And again, as an engineer, when I have to talk to folks, it's like, I know the silicone tubing will survive an autoclave, but it's three feet long. So you can't scrub within that three foot surface and tell me that there's no like bio like there's no, residue that's blood residue within that when this is not contraindicated for like the first patient that hemofuse was used on in Ethiopia was like there were like blood pathogens so it's like mm-hmm. I can that's why it's single use for those so the pump is reusable but then we have filter and accessory kits that are for each patient so gotcha. it comes our our Full pack, as we call it, is one pump and 25 filter and accessory kits. And we don't sell them separately. You always have a pump with filter and accessory kits because you can't use them separately. So we had those available. Now, NGOs, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So we have, um, you know, a advisor, someone who's with us, Dr. Jeff Ling, who then connected us to Elena at For Wellbeing. For Wellbeing is a Ukrainian nonprofit. they already had the connections to the hospital. So they were looking for equipment and they were connected to all these hospitals and they were interested to take, take on hemofuse. We did, you know, kind of do a campaign to reach out to a bunch of NGOs to see what the level of interest was. The main challenge for a device like ours, especially in this type of setting is that not a lot of people know what it is. Number one. So they're like, what is an auto transfusion device? Number two, they're like, I don't want to bring a novel, innovative device to an area that right. already is dealing with a lot, right? So take right. Mm-hmm. take the emergency surgery nurse and amplify that to an emergency suite of of just a lot of unknowns. So they didn't want to put another unknown device into that. That being said, 
We're very grateful for for well-being. That is for well-being with like a a (laughs) F-O-R and Alana for doing this and, and her team because they got it. They got Hemofuse into seven different facilities, one of which was like Kiev Heart Institute, right? So like mm. the main cardiovascular institute where they were still doing their, their routine surgeries as well as doing uh, emergency humanitarian surgeries with some of the top clinicians. So that being said, we weren't able to really train. So we actually right. added in like an iPad and our poster material. <laughs> Into wow. the shipment because we were like, and we translated it into, I believe, Ukrainian. And then I believe we also did Poland because um, it was going through Poland. So I had to land in Poland and then get over the border into Ukraine. Um, but that being said, the one time I was I was able to hear from a clin- this cardiovascular surgeon who's amazing. He's actually been several videos outside of uh, that one. I asked him because I, of course, am the engineer, right? So I'm always thinking of misuse or I'm not there yeah, to yeah, know yeah. I'll shepherd them through the, the yeah. process. And he was like, it's simple. It took me a minute to figure out. It's not that complicated. Oh, I'm my like, God. Music to your ears. And I'm like, I appreciate that. But the other side of me is like, all right, okay. I know you're a smarty pants. You're a great, like, fancy <laughs> doctor. Okay. It's simple. All right. You're saying I have nothing to worry about. I'm just like, give it to your resident and then come I, back to no, me. No, no. no, they're all brilliant. They're all brilliant. But it, but it was just one of those where I'm like, that's amazing. And for well-being then, of course, earlier this year, since we were able to ship, gave us the, the news that they estimated like a 900 lives impacted by hemofuse wow. and a thousand we sent. So that's where getting connected to for well-being was through an advisor who then knew them and and then they were able to ship and it was a whole team effort. We even had you know we we reached out to like Turumo to send over from their I think it was from the European they they sponsored some blood bags to go with us because we don't do the blood bags because our device can go with any blood bag. So right. we don't specify any blood bag. So that's where they were like, yeah, we'll ship over some blood bags to go with it. And I mean, it was, it's been great. And we worked with Finca International, an NGO, to do the fundraising for it. So they were able to use a fundraiser campaign to then raise funds so that people could donate for us to be able to send. Because again, we're a small company. So that's where it was through kind of that coordinated effort of fundraising and then for well-being to do the logistics on the ground and for us to then be able to make enough to supply was just, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful effort. And again, multifaceted with a bunch of partners to, right. to get that through. So <clears throat> I know that your vision for the next few years is like is to have hemofuse for every hospital. Yeah. Yeah. That actually came about because our operations guy or our director of operations, I should say, James, you know, he'll see news stories or he'll see things online. And he just, and again, he, he'll just think hemofuse should be there. Hemofuse right. should be there. Um, and so that's kind of where it came to like hemofuse in every hospital, because there are so many different scenarios with massive traumas or, or blood being needed for emergency surgeries or emergency procedures where he's like, if hemofuse should be there. He, that's where hemophilia should be. So that's where, and it's not, and even for my team, like just a less than a month ago, sorry, it's like the Washington Post had a an article about the need for blood. 
Hmm. And there are doctors who are saying that there's a blood shortage. And the Red Cross has said even this fall, there's a blood shortage here in the U.S. And that's where I'm thinking that it's not just where you think overseas or, again, in, in areas like Ukraine. It's like it could be in rural areas in the U.S. or Mm -hmm. places where there's a high consumption in the urban areas of need for blood. So I definitely would say everyone should go donate if you can. Um, But it's also to say I think there's an opportunity, like there's a a need, an opportunity here in the U.S. for for something like Hemofuse as as a resource. Now, in terms of like donations and how people can get involved in that, do you have like a campaign that's going on right now that maybe we can link in the description <laughs> or the show notes? <laughs> Absolutely for Ukraine. Uh, Think International is still still uh, with us running that campaign. Um, there's, there's still a need. And again, this is one where, you know, th- this is for providing people blood for emergency surgery or like for surgeries right so emergency or not so this is where it's there's still a need there for ukraine um for sure and then there are opportunities to partner so if anyone else wants to partner please reach and if anyone contacts you we're open to partner um in in different aspects as well um we're looking at new markets in sub-saharan africa as well as southeast asia and then yeah eventually we're working on some some studies to do here in the U.S. to expand uh, our reach here as well. Oh my gosh. This is so good. <laughs> I know we've already hit the one hour. I know, I know. I'm sorry. Like, I'm this, so long-winded. No, 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 it's not even, no. I'm like, this. Is, it's just because it's good. I, um, I just wanted to ask you, like, what other, like, what other things are in the pipeline? Like, can you talk about anything that's, like, happening within the company? What exciting things are happening? I, I would say right now we're definitely looking at geographic expansion for Hemofuse. Again, Hemofuse in every hospital. We want to get it more hem, as well as looking at you know some some improvements or tweaks we can make to the device is is also part of the plan as well as we look towards here in the U.S. getting out here. But I would say, yeah, we we do have some other devices that are in the wings. You know, for Sisu, it's all about simple, effective medical mm-hmm. devices, medical technology. It's to say that sometimes you don't need to have the most complicated, fanciest thing. It's all about having something that's simple and effective that's going to make a difference. And again, from this experience, you know, we focus. It started with looking at maternal mortality, which definitely is still a, a big need within healthcare. But it's also what I found from going through with Hemofuse, it's to say, what other resources can we bring to the healthcare system Mm -hmm. that is going to improve access as well as make more affordable access, right? It's to say, what can we do to reduce costs and, and provide resources to help clinicians as well as patients, um, to get what they need. So and again, I like to just say I'm enabling clinicians to do amazing work and to help as many patients as possible. So <laughs> anything to help to repay back my family from everything that they've done for me <laughs> to, to get them what they need um, yeah. for devices. So, wow. yeah. Thank you so much, Jillian, for coming on to the podcast. One more question. Okay. How can people find you? How can people get in contact with you and learn more about Sisu? Yeah, so our website is sisuglobal.health. So you can reach out to us there as well as info at sisuglobalhealth.com. 
Um, we're definitely on LinkedIn uh, is probably our most active. And then from there, probably, I think Facebook um, and a little bit on, on Instagram. So, but mainly, link, but mainly LinkedIn <laughs> and Facebook, please. And, uh, yeah. and definitely through our website and our. So our she's saying employment. not to slide into her DMs. <laughs> uh, only if you like, if you need it, let, let me know. <laughs> You need need a giant syringe for for auto transfusion. We're we're your company. So amazing. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you love this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.